Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of September 6th, 2019. I'm Charles Hayne, I'm here with George Edelman and No Film School founder and CEO Ryan Koo. We're going to be talking about all sorts of good stuff today. We're going to be talking about the Black Magic Pocket, which Ryan Koo had some hands-on time with. We're going to be talking about the end of indie favorite Vedra Lensmaker. We've got a tech news about a new Canon camera. We've got an Ask No Film School, which is actually not even an Ask No Film School, but it was a question on our board that I wanted to address, and uh, about filmmaking collectives. Uh, All that on the new No Film School podcast, up after the break. Hey, welcome back. We are here. The first thing we're talking about this week is we're talking to Ryan Koo, No Film School founder, No Film School CEO, who has actually shot the hottest new camera of the summer, the Blackmagic Pocket 6K. Ryan has already started shooting some tests with it. So uh, what did you think? I mean, my mind is blown, first of all, because I guess just a bit of history. Since I wrote the DSLR cinematography guide for No Film School a few years ago. I mean, I haven't more really... than a few. I mean, not that not to say we're getting old, but that was like let's seven years ago. Let's go with several. Ago? Let's yeah. go with several years. It's a little bit out of date. I mean, you know, the concepts are all still good. Aperture, matte boxes, that kind of stuff. But uh, cameras, basically the point is cameras have changed so much since then that my perspective is somewhat unique because over the last few years I've been writing and directing. I haven't really had my hands on a camera, and my mind is blown at how much things have changed, uh, you know, essentially from the last camera I picked up being a, a Canon 5D Mark II, and then I come back from writing and directing my Netflix feature Amateur, which we shot on a Sony F55, and I don't recognize anything anymore. Uh, I don't recognize the red naming nomenclature. I don't know what a body name is versus a sensor name. I don't recognize the media. It's like I'm just getting caught up with CFast and all of a sudden there's CF Express. So my perspective is someone who's sort of stepped away for a few years and now the price points and the features and, and everything is really, um, I think we're, we're sort of living in the lap of luxury in terms of what's available to us uh, imagery-wise. Oh, yeah. No, I remember I took two years off to go work for this billionaire in Arkansas and I came back and like... It was crazy how how much it changed in two years. Like 2014 and 2015, all of a sudden, all video on set was wireless. Like I blinked and there were no SDI cables on set anymore. And I was like, that happened really quickly. And yeah, I feel like if you took three or four years away from paying attention to cameras, the Blackmagic camera is like a sci-fi camera. Like how screen is the how big the screen is in the back, the touchscreen, the amazing image quality you're getting out of a $2,500 camera. It's sort of a, a crazy combo. Right. I mean, the last time I was using a camera of this size and weight, we were hacking firmware. We were using magic lanterns to try to get a higher bit rate, you know. And I guess the angle that I want to come at the Blackmagic Pocket 6K from is just the the utility of compressed RAW is a game changer. And that was the big advantage to Red. You know, I owned a Red Scarlet. And um, so I sold it a few years ago when I went to be more of a writer-director. And... That was their killer feature. You know, other people didn't have internal compressed raw recordings. So all of a sudden you had to attach a whole lot of doodads and use a whole lot of hard drives if you're you're shooting uncompressed raw. Uh, On on Amateur, we shot F55, 4K, uncompressed raw. That's just an insane number of hard drives that you're, you're, you know, 
backing up in triplicate and, and shipping off hard drives. And it's, it's a whole nother uh, level of, of apparatus and personnel and everything that you need. So to have a camera like the 6K, the, the Pocket 6K, where you can record to CFast internally in compressed RAW is, um, you know, a game changer for a camera of this size. Well, and it's also particularly fascinating because we talked about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, the red versus uh, Apple patent war, like Sony went up against it and lost. And then they did uncompressed raw to avoid paying because red has a patent on compressed raw and Blackmagic through like, you have to give a lot of credit for the technical innovation there. Blackmagic Raw, which is way smaller fire files than Cinema DNG Raw, which is what they used to shoot. Blackmagic Raw is a real innovation. And they got around the patent by partially debayering and then compressing. So it's still raw. It's not completely undebayered, but they partially, so they found this really savvy technical solution to get around a patent to make this thing where like the files are very manageable they're very handleable. How much have you worked with them in post? Have you been able to take anything you shot so far and fire it up in a color suite and at least see what its flexibility is like? Or has it not? Like when did you finish shooting? What, a couple days I, ago? Yeah, I, I, ju I just shot footage. I actually haven't offloaded it yet. So I was going to give my impressions from the, the interface and the form factor and all of that. But I haven't been able to, to push the image or, or look at it on a calibrated monitor or anything yet. Uh, but, you know, obviously that, that, that'll be an update on the site and through our videos and, but and all that kind of stuff. But also, even looking at it in the monitor... Like, uh, you know, when when you're out there with a 5D Mark IV or whatever, what you're seeing on the monitor, the sensor has already taken that and processed it into video. And so the narrower dynamic range that you're seeing that that's going to be recorded in your H.264 file is the same thing you're seeing on that little two-inch monitor on the back of the 5D Mark IV. So when you shoot something like the Blackmagic Pocket, the 4K or the 6K, you can turn on a log mode and you can see that huge dynamic range you know, if you're out at the beach, you can see the detail in the water and the detail in the clouds all contained in one shot, even though you're just looking at it on that like three inch monitor on the back of the thing. So even in the shooting process, the benefits of raw, I think it's something you still notice. Absolutely. And so, so wait, to update me, is Sony's XOCN codec, is that no more because of the lawsuit? The, the, no, the lawsuit they, was They weren't 20... calling it compressed raw, but it, I think it is compressed raw. So it's, you know it's raw, but it's smaller. XOCN is so the the patent is specifically for internal recording. So Red's patent gotcha. is for internal compressed 4K raw, which is why the Ginny Tech video you probably didn't watch that 30 minute Ginny Tech video. I left it on while I was doing something else. The Ginny Tech video is all about the fact that like Red wasn't actually doing compressed raw internally at. NAB, they're like looking at all these like NAB fan photos from 2006 and 2007. And they're like, look, there's a computer hidden under that table under a sheet. And it's recording to that. It's not really recording in the camera. It's like a very, it's like a, it's a, it's a fascinating argument. So, so, so if somebody else wants to find this video, what, what do they search for? Ginny Tech, um, red patent. And Ginny Tech is a company that makes like red mini mags and likes to get in arguments with the company Red. And they did oh, like a yeah, 30 the, the minute lower breakdown. Price. Yeah. Right. Because there's just Hitachi or Seagate hard drives inside a, a red exactly. mag that cost 10 it, times just, as much, right? Exactly. It's that. just a little flash car. It's like little SSDs inside the slots. So the XOCN, I haven't actually shot a lot of Sony, but my impression of XOCN was it was always an external recorder, right? Like you had Sony Venice, right, Sony f 5 and you had to put an external thing on. And they designed gotcha. it to okay, look... Okay, so that, that's, how, that's different. Yes, because it's external, 
which is also why Ari Alexa, you could always shoot to external, right? You could rent the external codecs recorder to go to RAW, and then internal was always ProRes. So internal, I mean, obviously internal ProRes is also easier because it's smaller file sizes, but external RAW was always about Red's patent. Now, you know, Atomos is always doing ProRes RAW externally, and the only other ProRes RAW platform is DJI with the Inspire, and I think you make the I think they probably make the argument in terms of the patent license that because it's a drone and the camera hangs beneath the drone, it's not recording in the camera, it's recording in the drone, so that also makes it an external recorder, I think is DJI's gotcha. argument. So I think this battle is really about trying to get ProRes RAW into inside of cameras. Black Magic has gotten around to that by not doing uncompressed. They debayer a little so it's not fully raw, then they compress it. And that's how they get around it. So it's sort of an interesting, there's a lot of really sophisticated little decisions that go into letting them have something like the Pocket 6K even exist. And then now, in the last couple of weeks, now we have a PL adapter for the Pocket 6K. We have a speed booster for the Pocket 6K. So I think the mark, like the industry is clearly, all the accessory makers are so excited and are coming out so quickly around this camera. I think it is clear that it's like got a really, uh, dominant place in the market already and it makes sense because just the the top level specs when you say if you said hey there's a camera coming out that's twenty five hundred dollars that has a super 35 sensor that's 6k resolution and does internal compressed raw if you said that to somebody five years ago oh my god it would be like they wouldn't it'd be insane they wouldn't believe you they'd be like yeah okay and you know uh the aliens brought it to us from another planet yeah, and CFast is expensive when compared to SD cards, but CFast is a whole lot cheaper than Red Mini Mags. And so, like, even five years ago, there were Red cameras that did 6K and recorded internal RAW. But even once you spent the $15,000 on the camera body, if that, sometimes twenty five, you were paying out the pocket for Red Mags, $1,500 a pop. So the fact that yeah, you can do, like... Yeah, the dollar per gig ratio. I mean, I saw on SanDisk, on their website, the, the 512 gigabyte CFast card that's approved by Blackmagic for... Uh, 6K at the you know highest quality, lowest compression. It's a it's a 512 megabyte, uh, sorry gigabyte card yeah. for about 500 bucks. So it's a dollar per gig, which is uh, you know it's it's Scorching. it's still expensive, but you're doing 500 megabytes a second. So um, that price to to gig ratio goes a long way towards uh, being able to do an internal compressed raw at the highest uh, bit rates. Yeah, no, that is like we're we're. We're in a real sweet spot right now with, like, the things that are all coming together. Uh, I think it's a big game changer. I mean, the Pocket 4K was already a huge hit. They couldn't keep that on shelves, but I think the Pocket 6K is going to be more uh, screaming. How many days did you get to shoot with it? I just shot with it for a couple of days, and, and I missed the, the Pocket 4K because I was off in the offline production mode, but I was also never a uh, micro four thirds or smaller sensor person. Like my brain just thinks in terms of focal lengths and, and, uh, you know, either in super 35 or full frame, like once you get into crop factors and I call for a 50 millimeter lens, I just don't know what it's going to look like. And as a director, I have a hard time with that, uh, aesthetic and with the translation of that. So that the super 35 sensor on the 6k, you know, to me was what was what really perked up my interest. It's so funny because when you read about early cinema history, like everything we think of now 
as having such meaning is always like accidental. It's like 24 frames a second was a compromise. The DPs wanted 48 and the producers wanted 12 and they fought it out. And like Super 35 was sort of like an accident because, you know, Thomas Edison arbitrarily was like, the film should be about an inch. And like all of these things we think of magical are an accident. But because of 100 years of cinema history, like we've all really gotten quite used to Super 35. And it is actually sort of a nice balance of like big enough, we get a nice resolution, small small enough the depth of field is still usable like i i still prefer super 35 over full frame in a lot of applications because full frame the depth of field starts to get so small it gets really hard to work with like i don't want to do a full frame job alone whereas super 35 you could still do a like you know one mule team i'm out there on a wide lens and like pull my own focus when i need to super full frame is wonderful in a lot of applications but has a lot of challenges to it and Super 35 is just this nice sort of like the porridge is the right temperature thing that like came about by historical accident. But also, you know, there were a lot of other formats that also came about by historical accident back then that died away. And I think Super 35 survived because it does sort of land in that nice sweet spot in terms of yeah. all of the things it balances together. Um, have you seen that? Euphoria on HBO? Uh, I have not. It, that, is, that is up on our list of things to watch, but I haven't seen it yet. So it's Alexa 65. It's a TV show on Alexa 65. And from what I can tell, they're shooting wide open almost the entire show. You know, it it involves drugs. and It's it's a show unlike any other in terms of how much it relies on cinematography for its storytelling. And it's really fascinating to look at. But when I first started watching it, I thought they were green screening stuff because my brain is calibrated to exactly what you're saying, the 100 years of watching cinema. And the background seemed like it was so out of focus, like they weren't even there, which as a creative choice is perfect for the show. But it's what you're saying. It's its own look because it looks so different because it's a large format TV show. And uh, it's a great creative choice by them, but it's, it's exactly what you're saying. You know, Super 35, especially for if you're working on a lower budget level where your goal is to look like higher budget movies, right? You're trying to suspend disbelief. You're trying to make people think that this is a quote unquote normal movie and not some like low budget DIY backyard production. Then looking like the industry standard is a really great asset. So, so getting my hands on the camera, I I, I was, uh, the other thing that really stood out to me is just the weight. Um, you know, nothing, right? It was a two and a half pound camera. I think my the, the Canon twenty four to seventy lens I, I attached is as large and weighs as much, if not more, than the camera itself. And then because it's so light, and you can stick a, a Canon battery inside and, and just a CFast card internally, um, you know, I put it on a three and a half pound tripod and and threw these things in my Camelback backpack like it wasn't even a camera bag. And that's that's a ten pound setup that shooting 6K Super 35 raw. I mean, it's really it's really crazy, and I think people can get really creative with what kinds of productions they can do with a, a, a package that minimal and that light in terms of if you're hiking to locations, you don't need a lot of different, you know, if it's a place you can't get the, the truck to, uh, if you want to skydive to some really remote location. I mean, once your overall setup is that small and light, uh, you know, one-man bands become a lot more possible. It, it's really... Um, it's not just the specs, you know, it's what, what can you do creatively with, with this new form factor in the, in the lower weight. 
I just love the flexibility of like, you're going to CFast or you're going straight to a thumb drive or you're going straight to a heart drive. I mean, we always try and prepare, but I've been on so many jobs where I'm like, okay, we're in this cabin in the woods for four days. And on day three, one of our cards dies. And now we're down to three cards and it's frustrating. And it's like the ability to just be able to like send someone to Best Buy. Like you don't have to worry about getting a red mini mag and ordering it like a thumb drive, an SSD drive, like the variety of things it can shoot directly to really makes you think like, why doesn't every camera just have a USB port I could shoot directly to if I wanted to? It's like a really nice kind of way to think about it, especially because SSD prices are even cheaper than CFast. So there's a lot of nice thought that goes into a lot of things in the 6K that I think are people are appreciating at the moment. What I wanted to know was what was, you know, when the camera was first announced, there was definitely some some detractors or backlash or people wanted more. What was the... Uh, I mean, what one of them was me. Missing? <laughs> one of them was me. Uh, and, and look, in my initial review, I was like, this is 99% of what we want. And when you get 50% of what you want, you're not grumpy. But when you get 99% of what you want, you really obsess about that 1% you're not getting. That's a great point. And for me, it was like, oh, my God, this is every spec. But I wanted EF is a wonderful lens mount. And I understand why they chose it because there's a hundred. There's probably 200 million EF mount lenses on Earth. It's the most common lens mount that's ever existed. I thought it would have been bolder if they'd gone for one of the mirrorless mounts like RF or L. You could still adapt it to EL, EF mount. You know, you could even, there's RF to EF adapters that have internal LND filters, which would be nice. But then, you know, you could put a PL mount adapter on there if you had one of the shallower lens mounts. I, shot, I thought they should have gone for L. It's the open lens mount that's shared between, you know, Sigma and Leica and Panasonic. And it's the, like they're pushing. And what's great about those shallow lens mounts is you can adapt it so easily. So you could buy a $200, $100 Photodiox PL mount lens adapter and all your PL mount, PL mount lenses fit. Or you could have an EF adapter and then EF is widely open to you. I felt like EF native was a weird choice. However, within a gotcha. week of it coming out, Benzomatic was like, hey, no, not Benzomatic. That's some weird uh, welding thing in my office. A company, not called Benzomatic, we'll put it in the email we send out, um, <laughs> came out with a EF to PL conversion where you can take the EF mount off the camera and put it on a native PL mount and you get a one-year warranty oh, wow. for it. So that solved my only reluctance. There you go. That was my only reluctance and now you can have a PL mount for it and you can swap between EF and PL would the L mount have been smart? Like, would it have transmitted lens data to the camera? Yes, there are smart okay. L to EF adapters, and they're but they're more expensive. The dumb yeah. L to EF adapters are the more affordable ones. But they're smart ones, and they're smart L mount lenses. And lenses are really moving in that direction. The like the lens design you can do with a shallower flange focal distance, like an L or an RF, like is where we're moving. So there's all sorts of beautiful L series. Sigma art primes that are coming out that would be like a great complement to this. However, right, and as soon as you're doing VFX, you know you're going to want that lens, lens metadata to know the the, the yeah. aperture and the yeah. all of that, so that the yeah, so it is script supervisor isn't having to take copious notes and hope yeah. you got it right. So it is really not, and honestly, now that you can switch between PL and EF, it's killer. It's so killer. So so my other impressions were. Uh, you know, again, I'm coming from DSLRs where you're trying to hack it to shoot video. And this is those cameras are still cameras first and video cameras second. So it was great to come to a video camera where uh, you have all the features you want built in, like the adjustable zebras and false color and focus peaking and a histogram on the screen and, you know, all the sort of things that you expect from a high-end 
camera that you can use on a feature film that maybe has an extra zero or two on the end of the price tag. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't you know looked at the footage, but and I was looking at the the sort of flat film, uh, no LUT look, right? So I'm looking at at grayish, low contrast imagery. But I think those of us who are experienced with that kind of imagery knows we know how much data is in there. We know what you can do with a raw file that looks like that. How malleable it is. Once you get it into the grade, which of course Blackmagic sort of has their other killer app, which is just including Resolve. So I was really happy with the, the color science and the way everything looked. And obviously, we've already talked about the form factor and the price and all of that. Um, the only issues I had were some nitpicks, which were kind of interface related. Uh, one was these screens are touch screens, and to adjust the metadata that's going on to the card, uh, you have to swipe on the screen. And as soon as you get into gestures, you know, for maybe something like a consumer product like an iPhone, you sort of learn those things and they become intuitive, but they're not on their base level actually intuitive, you know. And a, and a pro tool, if you hand it to an AC who's experienced with other cameras, they should be able to pick it up and pretty naturally find where things are in the menu. So I thought that the swipe gesture there is great. It's a great shortcut, but, you know, just put that interface in the menu system also in case you can't find it. Um, now, is there an app? I don't think there's an app, right? Like where you could pair I, it to your iPad. Because sometimes with metadata, you'd like to be able to like like write shot notes and stuff. But I don't think you can pair it with a phone yet. I think there's an app. I'm not sure if it does that. Got it. It's uh, a good question for us. Someone will probably correct us on Twitter. Or if Yay. Blackmagic has it, uh, our apologies. Um, so I wasn't using the app, at least. I mean, and obviously, yeah. I'm just, I just know first impressions here. Um, and then the other interface nitpick that I have, and it's something that, that came from shooting amateur with a lot of high-speed photography where we'd be going from basketball action to narrative action at, at our project base rate of 23.98, was if you're shooting high frame rate or off-speed, I want that indicator on the interface to be really prominent. Oh, yes. Oh, because my God. Because, you know, if you're a one-man band and you're shooting and you shoot a shot at high speed and the next one you want to be back at 23.98, it's really easy to forget, especially if, like, the Blackmagic interface, it says both frame rates. So you see 23.98 on the screen you think, oh, okay, I'm good. Um, but even if you have a full crew and ACs and a slate, you can still accidentally shoot off speed. And we had some shots on Amateur that were, you know, 36 or 48, and then we said, oh, yeah, we got to redo that because that was supposed to be... 2398 it's just a narrative uh, dialogue scene so the fact that it wasn't red or bold or you know something that says hfr and really indicates to you like hey you are not shooting at your project base frame rate um that's another nitpick that i that i found because uh, through mistakes of my own yeah of, of not realizing i was shooting a higher speed but these are um these are just you know really small nitpicks that i almost feel uh, absurd to be bringing up on a camera with that kind of feature set. Well, and their firmware and then, fixable, like they, they and, their, could. and their software completely yeah. fixable, absolutely. And and then the other thing that was, it's not a nitpick, it's not a problem. It's just when I'm using a camera of that form factor, I'm accustomed to it being a full featured still camera. Yes. And that's not what these are, of course, but they have a, a battery grip. You know, they have they take Canon LPE6 batteries, they take Canon lenses. So I was used to, if I wanted to jump over and shoot a still, to have this sort of basic still camera features. And again, this is something that Blackmagic could lean into if they wanted to update the firmware. But the, you know, from from the way the autofocus works to to sh choosing your shutter speed, um, 
you know, it's not a camera that's going to shoot stills. It has a dedicated still button that will capture a, a single frame of cinema DNG. But I, I think that it doesn't show up in playback, so you can't review them. It's just, you know, it doesn't have the kind of DSLR or mirrorless feature set that it's, and it's never going to have a, a Panasonic, I mean, sorry, a uh, Canon or Sony A7 or Nikon kind of feature set. But where those cameras are, you know, really good still cameras and then pretty good video cameras depending on what you need and what you hook up externally, this camera is a great video camera and a really bad still camera. And it's not supposed to be a still camera. You're not cinema setting up strobes. Cinema camera in the name. Exactly. It's cinema camera in the name. But it, it's interesting once you pick up something with that form factor because you're thinking, oh, let me just flip over and shoot a couple stills. So it, that that's something that in my head I realized, oh no, I can't I can't do that with this, and that's sort of the trade off. You know, I get I get false peaking, I get compressed internal raw. It's a cinema camera, but your brain may have a lot of muscle memory from using things like the Canon Mark Five D Mark II or you know the Sony A Seven S. Yep, and it takes a while for your brain to reprogram itself and get used to like what because you know I'm never frustrated my Alexa doesn't shoot stills. So it's just a matter. Right, no, of, exactly. It's exactly. just a matter of getting used to the fact that it might look like a still camera, but it's not. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so this this is the thing for me. Having been through making a feature where we really pushed the image in post. You know, we had we shot at Sony F fifty five RAW, and then we graded it uh, in Resolve, and we ended up even using the RAW data so that we we would grade the shadows at one ISO and the highlights at a different ISO because of the different dynamic ranges in the Sony camera. So we really, you know, used all the malleability of that image and, and I became a, such a, a raw convert. Um, to me, that's what I thought about the Blackmagic Pocket 6K is like, this is a game changer for me. I take this anywhere. Even if I shoot at the wrong ISO, at least I know I can change that later, for example. But then I heard you talking about HDMI raw. Yeah. And so what I'm curious about is segueing into, okay, this camera can do it internally. And when I've seen other sort of still camera form factors announced, when I see that they do four to two zero internally, whatever the bit rate is, I just sort of get like, you know, meh, I want raw. But what you're saying and what's coming out now is that the ability to do uh, what undebayered HDMI raw to an external recorder. So yes. who is enabling that, and where do you see that going? So because I, I don't Atomos know has been pushing that like nobody's business. Atomos makes these great recorders, the Ninja and the Shogun. And from as soon as they came out with ProRes raw, they were like, ProRes raw is working over SDI, and we will work over HDMI. Manufacturers get on it. Like they've been shouting that to the hilltops. The first one to announce it was Nikon, but then Nikon sort of woofed it because they announced it but then if you'd already bought a Nikon you had to like pay for the upgrade and send your camera back and all of that stuff and so like by the time that all actually started hitting the streets I don't even know if it's out yet Panasonic has come out with the S1H which natively from the beginning works with raw over HDMI um and so it's you know it's a comp it's it's taking the HDMI connector and format and sort of stuffing stuff through it that was never designed to go through it but so is raw over sdi which is what we used to record for all sorts of stuff so it's it's a way of a camera like the s1h or the nikon z7 catching up to the blackmagic pocket 6k honestly if you have no need for stills at all we're talking about panasonic s1h 
6K, $4,200, and then you have to spend another 1000 on an Atomos to get that raw. $2,500 out of the Blackmagic pocket. So it is a way of working around, you know, because those cameras, they, they're packing so many other features into the body in order to do all those still photo things you're talking about, like amazing eye-tracking autofocus and in, insane burst modes. But, you know, you're not going to record RAW internally to an SD card anytime soon without some major hacking. Um, and it's going to overheat if you do that. So RAW over HDMI is just a way of those cameras, which, like, don't really have the form factor to squeeze in an SDI connector. Like, you're not going to be able to comfortably fit that in a camera like the S1H. But you can fit in an H HDMI connector, and then having an HDMI connector, you're able to get RAW out to something like an Inferno or a Shogun or a Ninja. Right. So the S1H is a really appealing camera, yes. I think, as a B camera to yep. Vericam shoots. But it's interesting. Once you think about if you want to plug in an Atomos uh, monitor recorder through HDMI and then build it out with batteries and such, I guess the question then is like, how much smaller is it as a B cam uh, once you have all the features you you would want if you're going to be intercutting it and something. I think like it's, a, more, it's more you know, for crash film. Or it's more for like, because you can run, HDMI runs can be 10 feet and you can do a powered HDMI run longer. So you can stick the S1H in a crash cam and run it out and the Atomos recorder isn't out there in the crash cam. So you get some like remote head kind of setup things where I think it's kind of a useful. Mm, yeah, yeah, right. Remote head, yeah. drones. Stuff like that I think is more the appeal than necessarily trying to like build if you if you try to build a full S1H cinema camera platform package with like a ninja and then some external power for a follow focus and a teradec for wireless video at that point you should probably just buy a Vericam LT they're getting super affordable and they're wonderful or like an EVA1 right exactly well uh, I guess the last thing I will leave with is just again to sort of step back because all of these cameras are incredible and and uh, especially if you've taken off five years from camera geekery like I have. Um, I think the main, you know, the main thing I see between the Blackmagic Pocket 6K and cameras that have an extra zero or more at the end of that price tag, it's just dynamic range. You know, it, it's probably 13 versus 15 stops. Um, and I'm somebody that would take, I'll take good color science and more dynamic range over resolution. Oh, by far. Every time. Yeah. Uh, but so like the, the, the problems that I had with this tiny inexpensive camera were nitpicks. And then obviously from the spec standpoint, it's like, oh, well, if it's 13.4 stops, you know, I'd love it to be 15 plus, but yeah. then again, I'd love it to be $1, not $2,500. So it's, 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 you just sort of get spoiled by using a camera like this. And I think it's interesting to talk about the S1H because we're talking about building it up. But then at a certain point, you know, it makes sense to just go with the, you know, the F the, the the Venice or the Vericam or the um, Red or the Alexa, like there's a certain point at which the fact that it's small, you you build the camera and it's the same, right? The fact that this is $2,500 and it does internal makes it a no-brainer. Like you, could, you take this camera anywhere and you have a lot of options as long as you're not trying to do a studio still photo shoot, you know, in which yeah. case obviously bring a still camera. Uh, so great job, Blackmagic. Um, you know, I guess every review, if somebody had not been around for five years, would be totally over the top. <laughs> it's like, wow, <laughs> yeah. this uh, this laptop has Wi-Fi, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, 
But yeah, that those are my impressions. I always forget that laptops didn't have Wi-Fi five years ago. You're totally right. How fast the world changes. Oh, I mean, I don't know about five years ago, but I remember the first oh, time. No, that I, was a joke. Yeah, that the first time I saw a laptop yeah. with Wi-Fi, I was like, oh, that's when laptops make sense. You know, like that's yes. and in this case, the internal compressed raw was the thing where I said, oh, that's where this form factor makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. So those are my impressions. We'll have a lot more about the camera on No Film School, and um, yeah, it's a good time to be uh, trying to to shoot movies that look great without a lot of money thank you very much for your thoughts ryan talk soon thanks charles up next on the no film school podcast we're talking about the end of indie favorite lens maker vedra it's always a bummer when a company goes out of business uh, companies do go out of business. That is a thing. The, you know, British East India's company was watched so large it affected uh, continents, and now it is gone. And, like, I'm glad they're gone because they were evil. Vedra, totally not evil, but also gone. <laughs> um, they announced, the f- co-founder over the weekend announced that it has shut down. Uh, there's a lot of reasons behind it. Uh, there was litigation between the founding partners. Uh, there was a $200,000 theft. Um even when you're insured, a $200,000 theft is still an annoying hassle in de- dealing with tons of paperwork, frustrated customers, and probably an insurance deductible, I would imagine. Um, and also, their lenses were really targeted at the micro four-thirds market. And if anybody's been reading our website for the last year, they know full frame is really taking off. And Vedra did not have a full frame offering and probably wasn't able to amass the resources to come out with it. So a little history, Vedra 2014, it, back in 2014, if you wanted a cinema lens, you either had to pay a whole lot of money or you had to take a still lens and de-click it and put on a lens ring and all this. And Vedra was like, what if we just sell you like a really nice lens for like a thousand dollars that is like smooth aperture, smooth, repeatable focus and geared teeth. And they made it for the micro four thirds mount, which meant it was popular with cameras like the Blackmagic Pocket, the GH5, also a big hit with the Blackmagic Pocket 4K and like they were just this little indie company. They weren't a big giant, but like, I think they sort of impacted giants. I think some of the other, you know, the last couple of years have seen a whole lot of competition in the cinema lens space as still manufacturers come in and try and occupy that space like Takina and the Sigma Cine Primes, which I shoot with a lot and I think are really amazing. And honestly, I think a lot of that, like Vedra, I don't think Vedra made it happen, but I think Vedra proved to people where they were like, oh, there are people who will buy this. Like, this market is a market. And uh, so I think that's like, I don't know, always bummed when a company that was doing cool stuff goes under. And I do, uh, we just wanted to take a moment to, to tip our hat to Vedra. The other interesting thing was I feel like we don't really know the full story on why. I guess like you pointed out, full frame is becoming a thing. But the uh, the loss of their inventory plus the legal battle that's like two major factors and we don't really know which um was the bigger one in their shuttering but uh i think there's another cool thing about them that uh you brought up in the story which was that they started on a kickstarter campaign yes and uh, it's always cool to see someone kind of come along and develop a product that fills a need uh from like a kickstarter that, that people love and then, uh, but it's a shame when something like this happens and they they fade out of the out of the spotlight. 
Yeah, it is a real bummer. It is one of those things. Kickstarter is sort of an interesting space because I think a lot of people kickstart a product, not a business. And the thing is, is a product and a business are two different things. A business is something that has to be ongoing and have continual new markets and new ways to expand and do those things. So if you want to build this one individual product, if you're like, I want X to exist in the world, not a business that makes cine lenses, but cine lenses for micro four thirds that are under a certain price point. Sometimes Mm, the initial energy of the Kickstarter, which the audience agrees, we want this one product to exist fizzles itself out and it doesn't turn into a business. And I think there have been a few examples of that. There have also been some examples of some blatant fraudsters using Kickstarter as a way to get money in their pockets and never really intending to deliver. But I think this is a case where Vedra wanted this thing to exist, saw a market opportunity, and they were like, we want this to exist, which doesn't always equate to an ongoing business where there are continual new products to keep cash flowing. So I think we yeah, might have been seeing a little a- bit of that. That's a very good point. You know, it's interesting bringing up t- Kickstarter, just talking about Kickstarters and the various uh, ways things go there. There used to be a thing, I don't, know, I don't know if there's still a place where someone's archived it, but of Kickstarters that went nowhere and like really weird Kickstarters. I remember finding a post or a database on that that I was fascinated by, like Kickstarters that almost met their goals. They're just kind of sitting there. There's like a, for lack of a better term, a Kickstarter graveyard that just extends of like all these strange things that people tried to do that, that, that didn't get meet their goal or didn't go anywhere. I mean, I do have to, I I love the idea of like, I shared this with the world and, and nope, nobody else actually does want it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. That's kind of, there's something fascinating about some of them. Cause I remember looking at someone and being like, wow, that's weird. Like who would, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, And then the other thing we wanted to talk about this week before we head into tech news is Aperture has launched Light This Location. So there are a lot of competitions out there, and we don't cover every single one on the podcast. But the Light This Location one was interesting, and we wanted to talk about, first off, because there's amazing prizes. There's like a red 8K Helium camera as one of the prizes, which is like, who wouldn't want to just have a red that you can use whenever you want? There's $20,000 in Aperture lights. There's $10,000 in Quasar lights. What's, What's nice about it is it's like Aperture's thing, but there's a lot of other lighting companies out there. Like, there's Hive lights, which, like, I've known John Miller for 15 years, and I love Hive lights, and they're great. Um, it's interesting because there's never actually anywhere where there's a direct competitor, right? The, there's Aperture, and then there's Hive, which is RGB, which Aperture doesn't do a lot of, and then there's Quasar, which does tubes. So it's like, it's a nice spectrum, but there's a whole bunch of cool mm-hmm. lighting companies in there. There's a whole bunch of cool filmmaking gear. There's a lot of fun stuff. But what I like about this particular contest is it is a contest driven by really helping focus our attention to how much power we have in lighting to change the location. So it's called Light This Location, and as part of your requirements, you have to do a BTS video and a lighting diagram, which is great because I love looking at lighting diagrams, and I totally like look at them all the time and read American Cinematographer and look at them on No Film School because I like like unpacking how people did it. I used to teach a class in LA called Shooting the Masters where we'd take a scene from a movie and we would try and recreate exactly every single thing of what they did. And you always learn something because you're watching some crazy old Charlie Chaplin movie and like every single thing they're doing in lighting that movie you think is against the rules. You're like, no, but you would never put a light there and you'd never put a light there. And then they did and it totally worked. And so it's it's 
it's always a real education trying to like see what other people did and recreate it. And this is that's fascinating. If when you, if you do that with something like a Chaplin movie, do you use those super high powered lights when you did that, or well, did I mean, you just use in the that modern... particular class? We did not have access to like yeah. original Kleegs <laughs> and carbon arcs, but it was more about thinking about direction and thinking about yeah, uh, sure. you know like hard versus soft and light placement and things like that. It was more about trying to recreate as best as possible with modern tools. If you're Soderbergh and you're doing the good German and you have the budget and the backing to do it, <laughs> you go out and you use those original lights and you learn so much because there's so many habits yeah. you get into as a DP where you're like, all right, I don't do X and I always do Y. And then you're watching this great movie that you love and you're like, oh, you're not doing X and you're always doing Y, which I thought I wasn't supposed to, like I had convinced myself never looked good. And then you're doing it, and it looks great. Um, so I think like you're, this location is sort of an interesting contest because you're going to be able to watch, you know, if you enter and you watch some other people's films, you're going to be able to see stuff where you're like, ooh, you totally took this, like, shitty, dingy warehouse and you turned it into this amazing, like, launch party for a startup company, and you did it with these four lights doing things that I would never think of doing. It's a really cool contest because of, like like you said, it's a very filmmakery. It's not about yes. end product. It's about process. So they break down the criteria that you're judged on into five things. And originality and creativity is one. Quality of cinematography is two. So those are kind of like maybe the standard things. But then the quality of your BTS video. Yes. That's a pretty cool thing. That's a pretty cool thing to be good at. It's of super val super high value to you as a filmmaker going yes. forward. It's also instructional to others. And how many contests are about the quality of a BTS video? And then the quality of the floor plan, which you yes. which you mentioned, and there's an example in there. It's also really cool. We should uh I want us to find a way to incorporate your ideas about your old class where you talk about recreating uh, floor plans and lighting diagrams from great scenes into no film school. Because that's an awesome idea. I would love to do that. Oh, God, um, yeah. And I think a lot of, of the... our readers would love it. Yeah, like once a month, somebody on the Twitters is like, recreate this scene. Actually, I should get to pick the scenes because otherwise they're going to be like, recreate this scene from Jurassic Park where the dinosaur crushes the car. And I'm be like, I don't actually know how to do <laughs> it'll that. All... <laughs> but... It'll all be Inception. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it'll be stuff like Inception in the Dark Knight. Please um, just make quality... Paris bend in on itself. <laughs> You have four dollars. Yeah. Um, quality of floor plan, but use of product, which is also yep. cool. I just feel like this everything about this contest like screams like process and no film school mentality and like yeah. and using your how you approach the process and and not what the quality of your end product is, which is really cool and yep. great to be able to emphasize it. Uh, absolutely, I agree with all of that. So check out Aperture. Like this location. I actually, I can't believe because we don't talk about contests a lot on the podcast, but we just had so much great stuff to say about this contest. Maybe we'll talk about contests more often if they, if yeah, they are I mean, as you know, interesting as this one is. Yeah. And on that note, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff on No Film School. There's, is, there's a lot of contests in general you should always be aware of and let us know if there's a cool one coming up that we can mention. But we also have like our, our quarterly grants uh, filmmakers should know about posts that's up recently from Oakley Anderson Moore, one of our writers, and that's a really good resource where a ton of opportunities are listed uh, every quarter on the site. And um, don't look down your nose at contests. I know two separate people in LA who like weren't they weren't busy, so they made a contest movie. One of them got a commercial agent and is directing commercials from that contest they won. Another of them, like it launched a whole other area of their career. So like if you if work gets slow, don't look down your nose at a contest. Go crush that contest. Yeah. Also, if you're local, wherever if 
wherever you are, they're valuable. But uh, a lot of people like reps, because in cities like Los Angeles and New York, it's they may not get to all the festivals around the country, around the world. But if there's a local contest where stuff's going to be seen or, you know, your op- opportunity to be displayed, someone like a manager or an agent might be more likely to see it if it's in some kind of a local contest. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We will be back in a minute with Tech News. And now we are back with tech news. So the big tech news of the week, the dominant conversation, the, this news came out, well, Thursday, September 5th. You're probably listening to this on September 6th, is the Canon C500 Mark II, which is a full-frame, interchangeable lens mount camera in a, in a smaller camera body. So why is this camera so exciting? Why is it relevant? Well, first off, it's $15,000, which doesn't seem that cheap. Because, you know, have I still bought a car that was that expensive? I guess I sort of finally did. But, like, I didn't own a car that expensive till I was 40. Um, it's more than many, many automobiles. It is a big chunk of change, $15,000. However, the other full-frame cameras out there, if you're looking at, like, Red Monstro, uh, the previous full-frame from Canon, the Canon C700FF, uh, if you are looking at uh, like any cinema camera full frame, obviously the Alexa LF, Sony Venice, full frame cinema features, this is now a very affordable price point. There are cinema-like cameras, the Panasonic S1H, uh, the Canon A7S II that are full frame that have this. But when you really think about all of the actual features you want with cinema, internal RAW recording, this has got it, interchangeable lens mounts, so you can do EF and PL at launch. We, we assume that there will probably... Uh, be some others later. I did ask on the phone call, never RF. Uh, when they do, uh, you know, a lot of times they do a little press embargo calls. We did a, a press pre-screen, uh, pre-briefing, and my first question was RF, and they said not not likely because there's parts of the optical block and internal NDs that are going get to get in the way, which is a bummer because RF would have been cool. But, you know, EF, PL... Probably some others coming. Interchangeable lens mounts. That's something you want in cinema. You can have uh, real XLR inputs, which is something you're not going to have in an S1H. You're not going to have in an A7S II. You've got all of these other things that make the workflow work better in a real cinema-style camera body. The Canon C-line bodies that you know we know from the C100, the C300, the previous C500, the Mark One. So you've got all of those things rolled together. This camera is really designed to be sort of a modular system. So you can get like an extra block that's designed for like more broadcasty use. You can get an extra block that's designed for like field use where you put a V-mount battery on there. One of the optional modules can give you four XLR inputs. So it's really designed as like a a, a base camera head that's sort of the do-everything head and that you could probably just go shoot your indie feature with. But if you're doing a lot of broadcast work, there's one or there's one module if you're doing a lot of other kind of field work. There's another kind of module. So they're trying to make it flexible. They're trying to not build in every possible feature for every workflow. Because if there's a whole bunch of... You don't want to pay for a bunch of features in the camera you're not going to use. They're trying to let you adapt the camera to a bunch of those different features. One of the interesting things about the C700FF, the uh, Canon's previous full-frame um, thing, was that it really was that do-everything camera. You know, you 
a lot of ways, when the original C700 came out, they really talked about it as, it's the C500 with a whole bunch of extra power ports. I mean, there was other stuff too, but like, you know, more power ports for powering accessories, like follow focus and, you know, external video and transmitters and things like that. So the C700 is really the beefy, adaptable to every situation. The C500, more compact body, and now we have a more compact body, but with also full frame. What's really interesting to me is that this is only powered off the BPA batteries. So, you know, something like the C700FF, you're looking at the big V-mount or AB-mount, gold-mount, Anton Bauer batteries because, you know, a full-frame cinema package is pulling a lot of power. You're going to draw a lot of energy. You're going to go through those batteries more often. The fact that they're getting full-frame performance and they're using the smaller BP batteries, which are the same thing you use in something like a C300, I think is really interesting and sort of an achievement in design for Canon. Um, the big thing for me looking at the C700, the C500FF for 15000 or so, and then looking at the Panasonic S1H, for what, 4200 or something. I feel like Panasonic owes us a full-frame Vericam. And I feel like a, a Panasonic Vericam FF that was like $14,000, but gave us like Vericam's color science and the dual native ISO. Because I, I still like Vericam's color science more than I like Canon's, personally. I know Canon's look at YouTube. Um, I know that like... There are a lot of people out there that love Canon's color science, but like, ooh, you know, like, a, you know, interchangeable lens mount. You could have PL or L because Panasonic's part of the L-Mount Alliance or uh, EF, Vericam FF. Panasonic, if you're listening, Mitch, Gregor, um, it seems like you've got the sensor now in the S1H sensor. Then you could build the body around it. Just a thought. All right, so that's the C500 Mark II, the big camera news of the week. C500 full frame. And hopefully there'll be like a C300 full frame sometime soon. So this is a question from Jim Harlan. Now, Jim clearly didn't mean for this to be a national film school, but I'm going to jump in with my unsolicited opinions. Jim asks, any new New Jersey filmmakers want to start a collective? I'm looking together a bunch of filmmakers from any and all aspects of production who are based in New Jersey to form a collective. Look, and you had two two responses, and I think you should meet them, and you should talk to them. But I'm gonna t I'm gonna give you the spiel I always give my students about collectives. I think collectives are wonderful and complicated, and I think that the best collectives tend to form when there is something to catalyze around. I know of a couple of collectives where people totally just met each other online. Is a thing, it happens. However. More collective energy tends to be channeled when you have something for the collective to pivot around. So like when I started a production company, we took over a space and we took over a space and, and because we had a space and because we had, a, um, and you know, in order to have that space, we sublet some of the other offices out. So we sublet to a sound person and we sublet to, you know, a, a financial consultant and we sublet to other people because we had a space where people started going and we started going all the time we a, a collective energy started to build where we would hire people we knew when we had jobs that were going on and then some people we knew would just come by even when nothing was going on and that in-person active collective energy tended to work out really well and it tended to build momentum on itself and all of a sudden a couple of years later we're producing movies and a couple of years after that we're producing features and and there's like a there's an energy to that 
the problem with collectives, there's two problems that tend to come up with collectives. One is that if there's not something to like pivot the energy around, they tend to stay very nebulous for a lot of time where it's like, all right, well, we all know each other. And if you get something going, that's great. And if you get something knowing that's great, but like if there's not a project to work on or a space to go to or a thing to do, like the energy tends to dissipate really quickly. So that's one aspect of it that makes it really hard to do. Not impossible, but hard to do. The other thing that gets tricky with collectives is if there's not a lot of clarity about how things will be distributed if there are profits. When there's no profits, hooray. Much easier. Nobody worries about it as much. But, you know, if you guys collectively produce something and then magically gets picked up by Netflix and you never talked about how to divide up profits, that's where everything gets complicated and feelings get hurt. So if you do do a collective, have some early discussions about like how it works and what it means. But I would also say one of the things people want out of a collective is they want community. And filmmaking and community go hand in hand because on film sets, there's a community, there's a summer camp atmosphere. We spend a lot of time with each other. But building long-term community takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of consciousness. And I also think it's sometimes, sometimes people want to build a collective when I think they want to, I think it's probably better to see if you can't focus on a project. And it's like, all right, I'm working on this project. Who wants to help me on this project? I'm trying to do this, and here's my idea, and who wants to do things on this specific project? And then if that project is good, and you have another project idea, you can bring a lot of those people back. And I think that's a more natural order thing of things, to be like, I'm focused on this movie. Who wants to work on it? Whereas when you're like, in the general space, I feel like focusing on the collective before the project is putting the cart before the horse. Personally. Unsolicited opinions in the Ask No Film School space this week. Usually you're asking for opinions at Ask No Film School. But here I just saw that one and I have lots of thoughts on the collective process. There are exceptions to this. There are groups of people who just sort of like met each other online, liked each other's work, and are like, all right, let's help each other, and then did. But it is less common than you would think. And I think it's because the more natural order is to, to pursue a project first or to like find a space to catalyze that energy. All right, that has been Ask No Film School this week. I'm alone now. Uh, it's just me, so uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, check out nofilmschool.com for articles on the, all the stuff we talked about. I do a separate podcast called The Week in Film Tech that is just longer discussions on film tech. So you can always check that out if you're just into the tech nerdy shit. Um, tech nerdy stuff. Do we curse on these podcasts? Um, I'm at Charles Hayne, and George Edelman is at George Edelman. And I think Ryan Koo is at Ryan Koo. You can find me on the Instagram or on the Twitters. On the Facebooks, I think I have a public Facebook page where I have hair. I'm bald now. Um, yeah, all right. Guys, enjoy making movies, and we will see everybody next week.